All right, here we go. Hello, and welcome to the Junto Cast, a podcast on early American history. I'm Ken Owen, Associate Professor at University of Illinois Springfield and the Distinguished Visiting Fellow at the Kinder Institute on Constitutional Democracy at the University of Missouri. This time on the JuntoCast, we're going to be continuing our discussion on political violence in early America. In our last episode, we discussed instances of political violence from the 17th and the 18th centuries. In today's episode, we're going to be looking at the late 18th century and 19th century episodes of political violence. Joining me in this discussion is Michael Hattam, visiting assistant professor of history at Knox College, contributing editor to the Junto, and author of the forthcoming work, Past and Prologue, Politics and Memory in the American Revolution, which will be published by Yale University Press in November 2020. Thanks very much for joining me, Michael. Thank you, Ken. And I'm also joined by Roy Rogers, social studies teacher and blended learning coordinator at Yes Philly Accelerated High School. Thanks for being here, Roy. Howdy, Ken. So at the end of our last episode, we discussed the violence of the American Revolution, and we looked at um, a couple of themes in particular, one of which was the contagion of violence throughout the colonies. Um, And the other was the importance of looking at the particular contexts in which political violence was carried out um, in order to mobilise anger um, against the the British government. Um, But we also finished by raising questions about the use of the American state in the development of political violence in the early 19th century. And we also um, raised the question of the legitimacy of violence um, and violence for political ends in a democratic society. Uh, To that end, I would suggest at this point that if you haven't listened to our previous episode, um, that you may find it useful to go back and and listen to that episode, as some of what we'll be discussing here um, is going to pick up specifically on what we've talked about um, previously. Um, but I also thought it was useful just to just to restate those questions as we move into our discussion of political violence in the New Republic. Uh, Given that my work is on revolutionary Pennsylvania, um, it is no surprise to Michael and Roy that I want to talk about the the Whiskey (laughs) Rebellion and I want to talk about the Freeze Rebellion. Um, But before I dominate the entire opening of this podcast episode, um, are there any other episodes of revolutionary or post-revolutionary violence that you think might be important um, to help us situate our discussion of the development of political violence in the new republic um yeah so i think it's useful to point out that there were other examples of political violence in uh, the 1760s and 1770s that were not directly related to the imperial crisis i'm thinking of the the tenant riots in the mid 1760s in the hudson valley uh, for example, those were 
informed by class and property issues, but also if we think about the war itself. Mm-hmm. And it's hard to think about political violence and the revolution without thinking about the war. And that includes things like uh, prisoners of war on both sides, uh, which were very extreme forms of political violence in the period. Also, there were the many sort of alleged war crimes that were committed throughout the course of the war. And if you're interested in that, um, there's, there was, there's a recent book by Holger Hook called The Scars of Independence, which explores uh, uh, violence during the American Revolution. The one example I did want to mention had to do with the death of Jane McCrae. And she was a woman in upstate New York when the British Army was marching down from Canada. This is in 1777 with the help of local Native American tribes. And she was reportedly killed by a Native American. And her, her death was used as um, propaganda to basically to inflame uh, the population and anyone especially who might still be uh, sitting on the fence. But, of course, the reality was that she was not a patriot. Um, and that she actually had some loyalist ties, but it's the act of violence, like uh, like the Boston Massacre, actually, uh, where that it proved politically useful from a propaganda perspective, and and also the use of those depictions of violence perpetrated by Native Americans, you know, those drew on a very long tradition of of that type of um, of, of that type of stereotype. And, and here in this tale, we have Native Americans allied with the British um, against uh, patriot women, basically. And that had a huge impact as propaganda. And so, uh, you know, it's worth noting that uh, recent scholarship has shown that patriots often played on the racial prejudices and fears of the population to win over support during the war. Yeah, I think it's also important to keep in mind that our discussion this episode is going to be bookended by two of the longest periods of sustained political violence um, in American history, uh, which is, of course, the American Revolution, the war portion of the American Revolution, and the Civil War. Um, that's important. And, you know, we don't – there's a tendency to not really think about the American Revolution um, – you know, war war is political violence, and it's important to keep that in mind. And it, um, you know, we tend to once it becomes soldiers, it, there's, there tend that, that tends to move in people's minds into sort of a different sphere. But it's really not. And um, it's important, I think, also to keep in mind the um, big spikes in you know really really deadly violence. Um, in, in the Carolinas, when it becomes, you know, very kind of like what we to use a modern term, guerrilla warfare, um, that is, you know, very the line between soldier and civilian is it becomes very blurred, um, and then also, um, you know, the death of Jane McCree hints at this, but I think the sustained warfare between patriots and Native Americans on the frontiers um, is another like place of political violence that. You know, or episodes of political violence within the the war that we don't always think about. That's also important and is going to shed some light on things that are going to come come later um, once the republic once the republic really gets going. Um, but I think it's really important to just remember the American Revolution itself as just a sustained period of political violence over a set of issues, a single set set of issues. 
So I want to push back a little bit there, Roy, when you talk about war as as political violence. Um, Partially that's because at the start of the last episode I explained my definition of political violence, um, and I think that does take it away from something that is quite so state-oriented as um, and and institution-oriented as war is. And I think that we can lose some of our um once we start bringing too much into the the realm of violence then we can find pervasive acts of violence everywhere and lose our ability to get some of the sharpness um that we can get looking at violent action as a political tactic um but by bringing too much under that umbrella at the same time i will um seed some ground um i think you make a very good point about violence against native americans um and i think it's important that it's not always just patriot forces that are um carrying out violence against native americans during the the revolutionary war and some of that is is very explicitly political um and that stretches back before the revolutionary war um at the end of the the french and indian war with the paxton boys um and and, and other examples of backcountry violence against Native Americans. I think that that is important to to recognise that that is a part of the political expression um, of those who who live on the frontier. Um, And and the other element of violence that I throw in, and I think you're you're onto something when you talk about um, what's going on in, in South Carolina or in Georgia during the revolution, is that while there is a the traditional type of war there is something that's much more akin to civil war um in 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 those colonies as well and that we also find violence used as a political tactic um at some of the most heated moments within american domestic politics um again i'm going to go straight to pennsylvania and talk about the the fort wilson riot in in 1779 but that breakdown in in pennsylvania's government and the division into two parties uh, very vividly comes to violence when the philadelphia militia surrounds james wilson's home um and and an armed standoff ensues um and we might also talk about the the militia seeking its its back pay and poking its guns through the windows of of congress in 1783 um that, that there's a lot of violence that is related to the war but that isn't actually military violence that would still fall within my definition of political violence yeah another sort of example of that i think has to do with uh, what we were talking about earlier and and the sort of power of the threat of violence or the threat of potential uh, violence and and that has to do i think with the widespread fear uh, both in the years leading up to independence but also during the war over the possibility of uprisings by enslaved persons. And and this has been a topic of uh, recent debates in the sort of public sphere. But that's another important case where the threat of potential violence can have a significant political purpose and a significant political outcome. Right. I think one of the places, Ken, where there's overlap maybe between our two perspectives is – the role of the military in society during the revolution that is, you know, 
There's the incidents in Pennsylvania that you were talking about, you know, and then there's failed incidences that bookended, you know, the Newburgh conspiracy, the threat that the, the army itself is going to maybe take control of the republic, which is a constant, like, looming threat and something that is that is always there throughout, I mean, really throughout this period through, you know, into the Jeffersonian period, the threat that the army is going to seize power and that specific form of political violence is going to take place um, in the American Republic like it's taken place in almost every other republic that existed up to that point. I think that that is something that is really important about the revolution, the revolutionary era. And of course, we are going to see a military seize control of half of the country uh, at the end of our discussion here in the 19th century. Um, so it's an interesting, it's an interesting point, inflection point, and that will bookend sort of our two discussions here. Well, if we're talking about um, militia action, that does actually give me quite a useful um, jumping-off point to talk about the Whiskey Rebellion, um, because one of the factors that is interesting about the Whiskey Rebellion um, is the use of the militia as a representative institution of democratic legitimacy for both the instigation of the rebellion and for the federal response. Um, so when we're talking about the Whiskey Rebellion, we're talking about the 1794 protest in Western Pennsylvania. Uh, Alexander Hamilton um, had sought the enforcement of his excise task on um, excise tax on whiskey by issuing um, or getting courts to issue warrants for the arrests of those who had refused to pay the tax in Western Pennsylvania. The tax inspector, John Neville, is helping deliver those warrants um, at the same time as the militia are mustering in Western Pennsylvania in response to Washington's call to mobilise um, against the threat of Native American attack in the West. When they catch uh, wind of Neville escorting um, judicial officers to issue these warrants um, around Western Pennsylvania, they surround Neville's house. An armed standoff ensues, including bringing in federal soldiers from Fort Pitt. Um, Neville's house is burned to the ground. Um, this is seen uh, in Philadelphia and by the federal government as an armed insurrection. Um, against the authority of the United States. In response, Washington um, marches out to Western Pennsylvania at the head of more than 10,000 militiamen. Um, they get to Western Pennsylvania and find that maybe the extent of the insurrection has been somewhat exaggerated, um, although they have had reports of a militia march on Pittsburgh um, that, that ends peacefully. Um, at the end of the at the end of the standoff, um, terms of submission are agreed to by a large number of the inhabitants of Western Pennsylvania. Twenty men are arrested um, and brought back to Philadelphia um, for trial. Although that in itself peters out. Um, the question really that I'm interested in exploring and 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 I look at in 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 my book. Um, is the question of the legitimacy of this form of armed protest and 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 in my book and in a in another essay that i've i've written on on this topic in a in a collection of of essays on revolutionary violence um is 
the response of Benjamin Franklin Bache's um, Aurora General Advertiser in 1794, where when they first get news of the rebellion, they say, let the citizens demand um, a change in the law, let them petition for its repeal, let them vote in new representatives, let them write in newspapers, any of that sort of protest against the actions of government is legitimate. What is not is taking up arms against the authority of the government. And, of course, Beish, notable opponent of Washington and the Federalist regime, and yet he can't quite bring himself in the pages of his newspaper, at least at this point in, in late July 1794, to to fully endorse the reports of a violent attack on government. And to me, that raises this question of, of what is the role of this sort of political violence within a democratic republic? Do any of you guys have, either of you guys have response to that? Well, I think we see a sort of similar raising of that question in Massachusetts with Shays' Rebellion. One of the interesting things about, I mean, this is a rebellion by farmers in Western Massachusetts who felt they were being economically oppressed by the state government in the 1780s because of the the heavy uh, tax burden after the war. But one of the things that we see that's interesting is the response by former revolutionary leaders who are now the political ruling class of the state. And in their sort of new circumstances, uh, downplay or dismiss the legitimacy of uh, these kinds of popular actions against the state of the type you know that they led against Britain before independence. Um, but now, after the revolution is over, uh, they argue are illegitimate because the authority of the state is at least theoretically derived from uh, some form of popular sovereignty. Yes, although at the same time, it is interesting that they do note the legitimacy of other forms of action. And this is one of the ways in which um, both the Massachusetts government under Adams and the federal government um, response, as, as particularly led by Hamilton, mm. um, although often vo- voiced through Washington in the, um, in, in the Whiskey Rebellion, is that they say, yeah, you tried. You know, we've had elections. Yeah. This was a democratically constituted law. This was a um, you know, when when Hamilton writes, he says um, you're already overrepresented. You, know, you have <laughs> three sixtieths of the federal legislature and one sixtieth of the population. What are you complaining about? You know, mm-hmm. you've just got to you've just got to take your lumps. And so it points to disagreements over the nature of democratic legitimacy. Um, and that's the interesting thing, isn't it? That on the other side, and you can say this about Shays' rebellion, you can say this about the Whiskey Rebellion, um, and you can say this about Freeze's rebellion in um, in the the Lehigh Valley in in 1799 against um, the Adams administration's direct tax during the during the Quasi War. They all say. But we've used other forms of protest. Um, Woody Holton points out that the form of protest in Shays' Rebellion is spectacularly ineffective because they don't send, um, their form of protest is not sending representatives to the state legislature. Um, but in, in Pennsylvania, in, in both cases, they can say we have voted people out of office. In fact, sometimes the very people that they voted out of office 
pop back up as tax collectors um, mm-hmm. in, in their area. And they said, hang on a second, we thought we were getting rid of you. Um, they've held meetings, they've, they've had petitions, and they can't, um, and they think that the federal government is basically trying to square the circle in saying, well, you've got all these other forms of um, popular protest open to you. Um, and there we do see some continuity as well, that they say, well, we've only been pushed to this violence because we've told you what we think, we've told you how unacceptable this is, and and you haven't listened. Where else are we supposed to go? Yeah, I think that the sort of the idea there is that uh, in both of those cases is, at least on the elite's part, is that the mere existence of a representative slash democratic form of government precludes the legitimacy of popular political violence. And that in cases where it emerges, that the state has a responsibility to respond accordingly with force. Yeah, absolutely. I think the Whiskey Rebellion is in conversation with some with things that are in the past, which, which we've already talked about, Shays Rebellion, and um, but also I think it's, with smaller, um, violent or um, things that were done under the threat of violence, like road closures and court closures and all these things that were going on in the 1780s that are the things that led, part of the things that led, you know, Shays Rebellion is a, a high-flying example of this, but it's much smaller local actions. They're often frequently successful, particularly in places like Virginia, in getting change, particularly economic change, that common people wanted. And the Constitution is in conversation with those events. And the attempt to create a more representative national government is an attempt to quell some of that by saying, look, now you are represented nationally. So that gives additional legitimacy to these national actions like excise taxes. But I also think the Whiskey Rebellion is forward-looking in the sense that I think it's showing that increasingly with the coming of small-R republicanism to America, um, political violence that's oriented towards the state is going to become increasingly less legitimate. But political violence between citizens and by citizens against non-citizens is going to remain a acceptable political tactic that that is going to actually just expand over the course of the 19th century. And violence by the state against those groups becomes acceptable. Um, I, I'm, I'm definitely going to take a different view um, on, on that front in that I think that one of the, the biggest mistakes the Washington administration makes is that they come from a, a point of view of we need to prove the authority of the state, we need to, to show what the state can mobilise. Um, and, and actually, if you look at the 1794 midterm elections, there's there's really some quite surprising results that suggest that they've overplayed their hand um, quite strongly. Um, and it's notable that um, the the heavy-handedness of the response um, is not used in anything like the same way in the future. You know, even when Freeze's Rebellion is, is declared a rebellion, there's greater sensitivity to um, from the Adams administration to how you respond, even though in styling Freeze um, as a rebel leader, means that you're putting the the locus of the rebellion less than a hundred miles from the national capital at a time of a fear of um, of foreign invasion. Uh, the the argument that I make about 
the Whiskey Rebellion and Freeze, and I think it, it applies to other episodes of, of political violence in the Revolution War generally, is that it actually shows how politically productive violence can be in a democratic um, society. But it's but to be productive, it has to engage that question of legitimacy. So you can't just be violent and claim that because you are a citizen, your violence has some claim to popular legitimacy. You have to have some concurrent mobilisation of extra-legal meetings or other shows of support um, that show that your violence is justified because you haven't been able to find a way of getting the government to be responsive to popular concerns. I think you're right that the government wants to um, portray violence as illegitimate, and it's very clear that in, in running to James Wilson to get the Whiskey Rebellion declared as as a um, as a rebellion against the authority of the United States. The Washington administration hopes that it can mobilize those optics of of illegitimate violence against a popular government. But if we look in more detail at the response, the fact that the rebels and their supporters further afield are able to use a plethora of. Um, other politi- popular political institutions to demonstrate the salience of their concerns means that the Washington administration is not able to delegitimize violence in the mm-hmm. way that federalists clearly hope to as a part of their political yeah. program. Oh, that's an interesting point. It's, it's, so the, the idea is, is effectively that um, extra governmental displays of democratic support Right, lend legitimacy to actions of uh, political violence by those groups. Is that the idea? Yes, yes, absolutely. And and, and you find some you you find similar ideas being mobilized in um, in responses to the Jay Treaty. Um, mm-hmm. You know how how do you legitimize burning John Jay in effigy up and down the the eastern seaboard of the United States? Well, you form committees, you have town meetings, um, you see it in the Alien and Sedition Acts. I mean, we we talk very much as um, certainly in in survey courses and in popular memory, as if the uh, texts of response to the Alien and Sedition Acts are the Virginia Resolutions and um, the Kentucky Resolutions. But um, Doug Bradburn's article on popular response to the Alien Sedition Act shows that it just comes in this plethora of forms that contest the legitimacy of, of government action continuously and the fact that there is you know in the same way that we talked about um, that i talked in the last episode about a toolkit of of popular protest this sort of a, a a toolkit or a continuum of representative institutions from elected bodies to non-elected bodies but still having some claim to speaking in the public voice that can be mobilized and that it's the way that those you engage with those bodies that tends to structure the success or otherwise of of political action that that can spark off popular protest and popular violence i mean how how does that how does that work or or how does that relate to say the justification then of political violence if you have that extra governmental you know show of democratic support if you're trying to justify political violence, say not against the state, but against other citizens or you know, or, or non-citizens. Well, I mean, I, 
you, you, you're, you're right that 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 becomes a um, quite a big question. I mean, the, the example that my mind immediately jumps to when you ask that question is the the Carlisle riots, the anti-federalist mm-hmm. riots, protesting um, an attempt by federalists in in Cumberland County, Pennsylvania, to celebrate the ratification of the Constitution, um, and they actually. it's it's quite remarkable really the militia or at least some of the militia muster and beat the federalists out of the town square and attack them with barrels and 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 violently drive them (laughs) off and then they write in the um they write in the public press that because there was no permission or community approval that had been given to the federalists to use the public square it was the federalists that formed the mob um because they were trying to claim the corporate identity of the town of Carlisle without any approval from the the citizens. Um, I guess you'd probably get something similar if you looked at the Pennsylvania um, Federalists who dragged the anti-Federalists through the street and locked them in the General Assembly to make sure that um, the Pennsylvania ratification convention was elected in Mm -hmm. late 1787 um they would say well actually we have a right to expect that the elected representatives of pennsylvania vote on things um and the anti-federalists would say well hang on a second we were given authority by our constituents to act as we saw fit (laughs) who gives a (laughs) who gives a bunch of Philadelphian thugs the right to drag us through the street um you, you see it's it, 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 there is a much I, th- I think there is a more complicated relationship that, that that goes on here that it can be used to justify violence if the the will of the community is not being upheld of course the question is what defines the will of the mm-hmm. the community but what the, what the violence does is it reorients things into how do we differently organize our power structures so that more people are happy with the resolution. So I think the will of the community there, I think, is doing a lot of work. And I think maybe it's something that we need to unpack a a little bit, because I think I I mean, I'm definitely more. I think that violence is partially about legitimizing and creating that will of the community. I think that's. really importantly clear as we move um, out of the early na- the early national period and more firmly into the 19th century, and you start seeing things like anti-abolitionist riots, you start seeing anti-immigration riots, um, and these are um, and, and these forms of violence are in many ways about both reinforcing an existing uh, you know will of the people, popular will, will of the community, but also creating one at the same time. You know, it, it, they're 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 doing dub, that double work together, um, and particularly I think when it comes to abolitionist, anti-abolitionist violence, but also anti-immigrant violence, because in many ways it's saying, you know, we the people of Baltimore are pro-slavery. We are opposed to this abolitionist agitation. We want to hold. You know the the union together and, and and abolition serves as as a way of disrupting that, and we want to hold it, that together. But on the other hand, it's also about foreclosing the ability of more people to be abolitionists. It's not it's not just simply you know there's this, this existing will of the people that is being pushed upon by outside forces. It's about making sure that that will of the community stays the will of the community and can't change through democratic debate, democratic process and 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 foreclosing options 
And I, th- and I think that's also particularly interesting because it shows the way in which popular violence becomes co-opted into supporting government as well, that pretty much all the examples of violence that we've talked about so far have pitted um, in some form the idea that violence is designed to challenge the rule of the government. Um, and when we get to anti-abolitionist violence, it's actually violence to support the existing um, fugitive slave laws and mm-hmm. to support the existing superstructure of slavery that exists in America at the time. And that is quite a quite a significant shift from the way that violence has been discussed in the other episodes that we've talked about. Yeah, I think this idea of, of political violence becoming an act of sort of uh, uh, foreclosure of, of popular politics is, is really important. Uh, there's a sort of example of that, uh, you know, Roy talks about anti-abolitionist and anti-immigrant violence. And we basically, uh, we sort of, there's an episode in New York City in, in 1834, which sort of uh, brings those two things together, where we see uh, multiple riots over the course of a week, basically, in 1834 in New York City by anti-abolitionists who, who are also uh, nativists. The thing that sets the riots off in the first place is that was uh, the creation of a, a new female anti-slavery society in New York City. And those riots basically targeted abolitionist meeting places, their homes, their uh, businesses. But this this idea of foreclosure is important here because, yes, it's trying to push abolitionists outside of the legitimate public sphere, right? Um, and in this case in New York City, you know, it's also working on, a, on, on, the, on the level of gender, right, and trying to foreclose not just abolitionist activity, but female political activity generally. Yeah, and, and I mean another another example of anti-abolitionist violence that's um, that's gendered would be the um, attacks designed to shut down Prudence Crandall's school in um, in, in Connecticut as well. Um, that um, attacked the attacks the ire of the local community when she allows African American um, children to enroll in the school um, in response to to that violence. She then changes the school to become purely for african-american children um and and the violence again um, includes poisoning the well um to 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 make the water undrinkable um and and to try and force that force the, the the closure of the school in in that regard and there we see a change in the way that some of this political violence takes place as well that it's not just targeting governmental figures Mm -hmm. it's targeting people who are claiming any sort of right to act as legitimate political actors yeah um and and that's quite a quite a broadening of the acceptable role of political violence from from what's gone on before yeah it's we see these examples of basically popular political violence right but with the purpose of reinforcing the state and and the 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 contemporary ruling order right and there there were challenges of course i I think one important thing because i do want to come back to this issue because i think it's an important one but i think we should also integrate into this story the violence um both within and against um slave rebellions or revolts, whatever the the best terminology is there, you know, um, with Gabriel's Rebellion is the, the, is the, the national, the early national example of it, which is, you know, this, this mm-hmm. almost went off rebellion that the, the evidence is that the, 
the the enslaved people who were fighting for their freedom were were using the same language and context that the revolution that the revolutionaries had, and you know of course they're caught, executed, and 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 tried, and there's a hardening of course of slavery and the political violence that goes along it with Virginia as a reaction, and then of course um, we see Nat Turner, who's a, a more successful example in the sense that his rebellion is able to go off but uh and there's there's a great deal of violence by nat turner and his his supporters but of course there's an even greater amount of violence by the white virginia power structure uh wants to put down turner's uh turner's revolt um Mm -hmm. and and this is this is also part of it right um it's it's there's there's a foreclosing there that that says that the types of political tools the political toolkit that you know, white citizens and even white non-citizens might have access to. Almost certainly, um, enslaved people are not going to have access to that. And in some places, of course, uh, free black people, free African Americans are not going to have access to. Um, and I think that's a really important um, part of this constellation of what's going on with violence that we need to put in there. I, I mean, I think this something that I... Something that I'd particularly point out there is the fact that when we're talking about what happens in in Virginia with Gabriel's rebellion and and Nat Turner's rebellion, and we could point to something similar in South Carolina with um, Denmark Vesey's rebellion, is that this is a legal systematic crackdown um, on the on whatever rights. Um, the free black population might have had in those states and certainly um a a tightening of the legal framework um regulating the institution of slavery in the south as well this is very much coordinated and given um and given life by the state um whereas some of the examples that we've talked about of of, of northern revolt um prudence crandall um in in Illinois, we might talk about the the murder of um, news, abolitionist newspaper editor Elijah Lovejoy in in Alton, Illinois, as well. Um, that there we see white citizens exercising rights that are supposedly open to them in the New Republic, but violence becomes the way of restricting them. And that's where, as you point out, Roy, will, the will of the community is is important. Um, that the, the justification that's given by these mobs is that they don't want the name of their community to be soured by people exercising their rights within those communities. But we notice that that's, people still pay lip service to the idea of the, free, the importance of a free press, even as they will try and destroy abolitionist printers. They will talk about the importance of education within a republic, republican system of government, but they will use violence out, and extra-legal uses of violence so that when we're talking about how it regulates white activity, it's done outside the legal structure whereas violence goes hand in hand with the institutional governmental legal structure when it's regulating and trying to prevent slave rebellion. Yeah, yeah, I think that's a, a really critical point. There's sort of a number of threads there that, that go back to our previous discussion. So if we think about Gabriel's rebellion in 1800, um, the context of that is the Haitian Revolution. And if we think about 
the VC conspiracy. It goes to the contagion of violence idea that, that Ken raised in, in the earlier episode. But also for uh, many lesser-known conspiracies uh, and rebellions that were put down after they sort of became known. And that kind of takes us right back to uh, 1741 in New York City. It, it, that's a case where there was really no proof of violence you know, by the enslaved population, but yet that served as the sort of pretext for an unprecedented degree of violence to be perpetrated against uh, enslaved persons and was also driven by, you know, international context and that contagion idea. I mean, I think uprisings by enslaved persons have to generally be seen as acts of political violence against the state. Um, because the the institution of slavery was so embedded into the institution of the state and vice versa, but also because slavery itself could be understood as a form of political violence. Absolutely. And I think, I think another um, sort of layer to this is of course, uh, Indian removal, uh, Native American removal and its relationship with the state and like multiple levels of the state plus popular action on the ground. Right. Um, You know, because of course for um, Jacksonian or Van Buren or whatever you want to say, Indian removal policy was, you know, nominally done against federal law and the rulings of the Supreme Court um, with and it was done both with the assistance of the federal government, sometimes without the assistance of the federal government, sometimes with the assistance of the state government, sometimes done by local action. Um, I th- and, I th- and, and the same is true just with conflict against Native Americans in general. It is sometimes done in concert with the federal army. It is sometimes done with the concert with the state militias. And it is sometimes done with extra legal, um, extra legal violence by just white citizens. So and, and sometimes it's done, as, as Ken's pointed out, to, to reinforce state action. But it's also sometimes, you know, going a step ahead of of state action. Um, but it's definitely, I think, that um, political violence against Native peoples remains an, an acceptable. It's a point of continuity going all the way back to Jamestown throughout this period. It's an acceptable point for white citizens to engage in. It's, it's violence against Native Americans, sometimes with the backing of state, the state, and sometimes not. Yeah, I think uh, part of the reason for that, and this kind of goes back to Ken's earlier point, is, you know, whether it's enacted by the, the federal government or by uh, individual citizens, it, it's always done with the assumed will of the community. Yes. Uh, and and this is, actually, it, it, it's been interesting listening to this discussion, particularly given that we have different definitions of what constitutes political violence. Um, yeah, th- this is not to and should not be taken in any way to suggest that I'm downplaying the violence of Indian removal, for example. Um, I do think that Indian removal as carried out by federal troops doesn't fit my definition of political violence, even though it is clearly a violent act. Um, As you point out, though, Roy, that given the variety of different ways in which anti-native violence is carried out, it can become tricky at various different moments to pass out exactly what is governmental violence, what is systemic violence, what is political violence. Um, And that's where I think 
to answer one of the questions that we posed at the end of the last episode, this is one of the 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 challenges of the the new republic in that because there's been a because in the early years of the new republic there is a failure um to delegitimize violence as a political tactic um it means that actually violence in some ways can become much more pervasive because if anything if any movement that can have any sort of claim to popular assent has the right to express itself in violent ways then there are now a plethora of different ways in which violent action um can claim political legitimacy whereas previously the legitimacy of political violence was actually much more tightly bounded but why wouldn't removal why wouldn't rem- removal of native americans by the federal government not be political violent if the ultimate end goal is to expand the boundaries of the state uh, because i think that the i mean maybe then we're talking about different types of political violence but i do think it's important to have some level of categorization between those things that take place with the weight of um with the weight of explicit legal governmental support and and those actions of violence that take place outside the scope of legal government action um i i think that the type of violence and the type of mobilization that is used for each of those forms of violence um is different and has different implications for how we interpret the claims that the actors are making with regards to power so again it's not to it's not to say that it's it's not violent and not to say that it's not got got a relation to government it's that it seems to me that that native american removal is claiming the legitimate authority of government and i guess i don't at the end of the day think that under but i mean certainly under my definition political violence has to be aimed at mobilizing some sort of change to the structures of power and i'm not sure that um, that violence that's carried out in the name of the power structure is necessarily violent is necessarily political violence which is which is to say that that is where i would say the violent actions of non-military forces in enforcing military removal could be considered political violence because there it's trying to use some form of popular pressure to give more power to the government to carry out indian removal I think, though, I mean, I think um, Native American removal, Indian removal um, puts pressure, though, on your definition, I think, in a way, because in many ways it is about expanding the realm of government, right? Because, as, as Michael pointed out, it's about expanding the amount of territory on which the American empire is exercising its authority. And sometimes this is done on a governmental level, but, you know, as I think we all acknowledge, it's sometimes done purely on a, on a, on a, on a local individual or, or, or small community level. Um, and I think that story of how removal problematizes your, um, to use that word, uh, problematizes your definition goes all the way back to Jamestown. I think it's the hardest, um, the relationship between political violence, the state, 
um, and Native Americans, that's sort of the hardest story to integrate into your definition of political violence. But it's also hard to, I mean, that that, that relies on an axiomatic assumption that government action is political violence. And I'm kind of excluding government act. I, I, I'm putting government action in into a different category. Um, th- and that there is an interplay and there is a relationship between political violence and government violence. After all, um, the political violence that I talk about is explicitly aimed at reshaping or reorganizing structure governmental structures of power but i think that i think that it's it's very different whether that's occurring inside or outside the formal channels of government yeah i mean well this is the kind of issue i i think that arises when historians try to define things it goes back to to uh when we talked in the last episode about the process of selectivity and how that's inherent in uh, the process of doing history. It can be quite difficult, I think, for uh, historians to try to define categories, um, especially of behavior and behaviors that apply over long stretches of time like we're uh, covering here. I think Ken's definition of political violence is actually more about popular political violence aimed at the state rather than the more expansive definition Roy and I are using. And the tension between them is the the product of historians reckoning with the past in different ways. Well, to bring us to, I think, something that we agree, a theme we all all of us agree on is that uh, there's an important relationship between enforcing the will of the community, uh, particularly the white community, and political violence in the 19th century. I think we should also call attention to um, religious violence, um, particularly violence against religious minorities. Um, The most famous case that should be familiar to readers of the Junto is, of course, anti-Mormon violence, um, which is a topic that we've covered. uh, We covered on the blog a lot. um, And I know... um, our our fellow Jutoist um, Ben Park is doing a lot of work on, um, and also, but also anti-Catholic violence, um, attacks on nunneries, attacks on priests. Um, this is again similar to the anti-abolitionist anti-abolitionist violence, uh, anti-black violence that's that's going on, um, and is very much about, uh, and sometimes is done uh, by the state, but but more frequently done through the sort of extra legal means that Ken identified earlier. Yeah. I mean, it's also worth noting that that there were lots of incidents of political violence in the period that uh, don't necessarily fall into the categories that we've been talking about. Um, I mean, if we think about New York City specifically, there were a number of riots in in the the late 18th and uh, first half of the 19th century uh, for a variety of reasons. There was the Flower Riot of 1837, the Astor Place Riot. Uh, in 1849, which was set off by a disagreement between a, a famous British Shakespearean actor and his um, sort of the upstart American counterpart uh, that had all, all kinds of local uh, class and ethnic tensions uh, built into it. There's also the case uh, in 1857 of the Great Police Riot, where a, a, a warrant, an arrest warrant, was issued for the mayor, Fernando Wood. Uh, that's basically set off uh, pitched battles between uh, uh, warring factions of the city's police. Uh, and 
ultimately required the National Guard to come in and enforce the arrest warrant and and stop the violence. And it's not just New York City, because, um, you know, there are lots of examples of political violence or violence with uh, political roots or uh, implications um, in many urban areas uh, in the 19th century that go way beyond the categories that we've been talking about. Um, One strange example uh, and this is from the late 18th century, was the, the medical riots or the doctor's riots in uh, New York City in 1788. Uh, this is just a really crazy case where uh, medical students in New York City were doing what had basically been common in England uh, for a long time, which was they would basically steal corpses uh, from graves uh, to, to use uh, to, as cadavers to practice on in, in the medical school, in the hospital. Um, and this specific riot was set off when a group of uh, children were playing in the lot next to uh, the hospital. Um, and there were lots of rumors floating around about, you know, these crazy medical students who uh, robbed graves and uh, did crazy experiments on the, the corpses. Uh, well, one of the students... Uh, saw the boys playing and waved to one of the boys with the arm of a cadaver and then told the boy that it was his mother's arm because his mother had recently died. Uh, And so the boy ran home and told his father, who then uh, had his wife's uh, grave exhumed uh, with a a crowd around. And when they exhumed the, uh, the, the... grave and found it to be empty, um, the the crowd went and surrounded the medical school, uh, reportedly a couple of thousand people, and this, the medical students had to be basically jailed for their own safety. And then the crowd sort of, you know, took out their anger in, in other ways until, uh, until the militia had to be called in to, to stop the riot. But that took a few days. Um, and you know, up to 20 New Yorkers may have lost their lives. Well, I mean, it's, it sounds strange to us by, by modern tech, um, by modern standards, but you know, in, in some ways that's because the moral outrage that those incidents caused changed the way that these practices were regulated and carried out. Um, and, and so in, in some ways it actually speaks to to the success of violence as a, as, as a political tactic in that, you know, when, when something is perceived, and again, I realise the, the term is doing a lot of work, but when something is perceived by the community to, um, to be morally outrageous in some way, shape or form, that it is a, a, a remarkably useful way of bringing about political change and that is an earlier story i mean one of the things that we've we've kind of had underlying our 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 discussion here is that there is um some change in in the nature of rioting because this question of democratic legitimacy adds another level to how rioters justify themselves but that question of the the morality of the crowd and and the rationality of the crowd is is of course a the um a theme that goes back much earlier and i think we would be remiss here if we didn't mention ep thompson's the the moral economy of the of the english crowd um who which where particularly looks at um particularly looks at, at at food riots and the way that um 
while there is a tendency to um, or what he perceived as a tendency to to look at riotous action as as somewhat irrational that actually if you if if you study the crowd um it has a mind of its own and that it is often responding in quite carefully attuned ways to to particular circumstances um we we haven't talked about price fixing riots we haven't talked about um we haven't talked about bread riots or or other types of violence in colonial america um but they do exist and they are effective at changing behavior again that's where i'd say you know some of it doesn't fall under my definition of political violence because it's outside of a governmental response but it does fit into my um the typography i think that i've outlined about the ways that violence can be very productive as a as a tactic of power provided that it doesn't become wantonly destructive and i think that's the common thread through a lot of what we've been talking about here um is that generally where violence is um is carried out under the auspices of some sort of nebulous corporate authority it is actually a very effective tool um of restructuring political or economic or cultural discussion yeah i think uh the moral economy reference is really important because it's been typical, I think, of the state and uh, or the ruling class um, when riots occur that they get depicted as being uh, representative of some kind of breakdown of order or anarchy, right? But in the 18th century, as you talk about, you know, we see lots of examples that show. Uh, that that was not the case. When crowd actions in the 1760s targeted the destruction of a royal official's home or business, it was well understood by the crowd that that was not to extend to the individual's person, right? So there are these inherent standards in crowd actions in the 18th century that lived on into the 19th century to different degrees and maybe in different ways, but they remind us that the depictions of popular political violence by elites as uh, disorder and chaos are not, you know, uh, disinterested assessments, uh, but actually have their own political motivations and reminds us that uh, that how we talk about these incidents uh, is important and, and has its own interpretations embedded in them. I think an important part of this story as well in the 19th century that Michael mentioned earlier with when he mentioned the New York City police riots is the creation that starts in the 19th century of formal police forces, which start taking away some, you know, the acceptability or legitimacy of forms of violence from and the enforcement of the social order from crowds and from the people as an acting to a specific class of of people called peace officers, police officers. That's something that, that starts in the early 19th century and is, of course, really going to accelerate over the course of the late 19th century and, of course, really take shape in the 20th century. Um, but it starts here in the 19th century, and that's slow. And that's a, it, it starts glacially slow, but it's it's an important precursor, and you see it with the New York City police riots. Well, we would be remiss, I think, without talking 
more about the sectional crisis and its relationship with political violence a bit more specifically. Um, you know, we've talked about anti-abolitionist violence. We've talked about some anti-black violence. But um, part of that story is, I mean, there is also, of course, anti-slaveholder violence, I guess you could say, that goes on, um, particularly as the, the, the expansion of the fugitive slave laws in the in the 1840s and 1850s really kicks off. You start seeing that in the North. You start seeing, you know, the famous Anthony Burns case, right, where the the force of the federal government come to seize Burns, and there was a huge um, violent action, um, both, both peaceful actions, but also violent actions um, in defense of Burns. Um, and the point in which, you know, the government has to release people and, um, you know, there's hung juries about the people who, who commit these violent acts. And, you know, and of course, the most famous example of, you know, anti-slavery violence um, before the, the Civil War is John Brown. Um, which these are these are important things to, that I think we should probably talk a little bit more fully about. Well, before we talk about Brown, I think it is worth going a little bit more into detail into some of the ways that both pro and anti abolitionist violence have been gathering steam um, as we've um, as we go through the nineteenth century. I mean, we've talked about particular episodes of, of anti abolitionist violence and a lot of what I talked about earlier mentioning Crandall, Lovejoy, the burning of the Philadelphia Abolitionist Hall took place in in the 1830s. Uh, but there is a growing low-level mobilisation of violence in the 1840s and 1850s as well. Um, Joanne Freeman has recently written about violence in Congress and violence as a partisan tool um, within Congress. We can see the way that mobilization was used for um, slave patrols and the use of slave catchers and the deliberate um, obstruction of slave catchers um, that develops in in the 1840s, um, 1850s, and then of course um, Bleeding Kansas, um, which I think falls um somewhere between my definition of of political violence and, and, and military violence as pro slavery and anti slavery forces decamp to to Kansas and fight pitched battles about who gets to write the state constitution, um all of which lead up to um John Brown's raid on Harper's Ferry in eighteen fifty nine. But I think it's important that we don't just jump straight to eighteen fifty nine and, and and that we point out the ways in which you know some of this is very clearly mobilized, um persistent political violence. Um some of this is maybe more in the moral outrage riot category that we've talked about when there's particular incidents of attempts to enforce the fugitive slave act that excite the um that, that, that excite the ire of a community but overall what we're talking about is that there's this steady effect that the more episodes of this that you get the more that a violent resolution to the question of abolitionism or the further entrenchment of slavery within the union um the the more important that question of some sort of violent resolution seems to become i think also when it comes to um these things i think we can return to the theme of contagion 
and the ways in which you know one set of instances leads to more sense of set uh, sets of instances, particularly when it comes to resistance to those trying to forcibly return people to slavery. Like, you know, one successful action in Philadelphia can lead to a successful action in, in Boston, and that can radicalize someone to go to Kansas to fight. Like, it's there is this like spread, and, and again, it's I think building on. You know, in the 18th century, we we talked. I I talked earlier about this contagion becomes more intense because of the networks of communication that go on. In the 18th century, of course, those networks of communication expand and become more widespread in the 19th century. And that's going to, you know, the fact that you can find out what's happening in Kansas when you're living in Georgia and you're living in Maine is really, really important to sort of nationalizing this struggle and making sure that discrete instances of violence in Boston are being read, thought about, and influencing the actions of people in Savannah, Philadelphia, Chicago, and um, and Kansas, and and being seen as part of um, patterns as well. That this, this isn't just a an isolated incident that changes the way that someone thinks, but b- b- makes people think that this isn't just a, a series of unfortunate events happening in a number of different places, but that there must be some sort of um, concerted effort behind all of these things. I mean, I think that's a good point to start talking about John Brown, if if we're happy to, because in some ways you you look at the details of the Harper's Ferry raid and think there's no way this could possibly be taken seriously, and yet there is such a, a stoked up fear because of this um, reporting of low level obstructionism and violence against um, the institution of slavery that people um, in the South think, well, if if we don't respond to this, what's next? Yeah, I mean, well, it's not just low-level obstruction. I mean, if we go back to the the, the rise of violence actually in the Congress um, that Roy mentioned, all of that comes out of the sort of uh, hyper-masculine honor culture of the 18th and 19th centuries. But it's also a product of the increasing sexualization of national politics, right, which is driven by... Uh, the question of slavery. When people think about this, they tend to think about uh, Preston Brooks and the caning of Charles Sumner. But one of the real achievements of Field of Blood, which is the book by Joanne Freeman that Roy referred to, uh, is to show that this issue of violence in the Congress was much deeper than that one incident. And that a big part of the way that that violence was structured was through regional expectations. So people back home sent uh, representatives to Congress and expected them to be willing to fight to protect the institution of slavery under the guise of their own personal honor. But for Northerners, it was different, right? Because many Northern constituencies did not approve of dueling. And so there was a disconnect there. Uh, but Congresspersons from both regions were engaged in uh, this dynamic where uh, the process of legislating. Uh, became even more uh, intensely performative than it had been before because of uh, the growing amount of media, both local and national, um, that was covering the Congress and and what happened there. Uh, They knew that what they did and said would be reported back to their constituents. And in some cases, there were arrangements between the more long-serving congresspersons and the and uh, the media to manage the reporting of their performances, 
Uh, and so as people are reading about uh, obstruction in the North, about the Fugitive Slave Act, Southerners are reading in their regional press about how Northerners are trying to introduce debates about abolition into the Congress. Uh, Northerners are reading about how Southerners are trying to extend the slave power over Northern states and territories. And all of this, this honor culture, this performativity, the growing media, all combined with the politics of slavery to foster uh, conspiratorial thinking that grew over time and uh, that goes directly back to our earlier discussion about the power of the threat of violence and the contagion of violence. And I think this expansion of media that you're talking about um, brings us back to something we were talking about earlier in the first episode about Bacon that's really clear with John Brown, which is the expansion of media allows individual acts of violence and individuals to control narratives in ways that don't necessarily require extra legal organization. You know, John Brown's actions, you know, many abolitionists or particularly political abolitionists wouldn't necessarily have wanted John Brown to do what John Brown did, whether those were the actions in Kansas of, you know, massacring people to his actions um, at Harper's Ferry. But Brown is able to turn his acts of violence into media spectacle. You know, that's where you get his testimony as well, that's really important to understand that, you know, this allows him to sidestep institutions and make his violence even more political than it would be um, otherwise. Yeah, this goes back to um, this idea of the power of the threat of political violence, right? Harper's Ferry was an isolated incident, but that was not the perception of it. From a Southerner's perspective, uh, this couldn't possibly be a, a one-off, just uh, some crazy guy and a few um, a- accomplices trying to invade Virginia and incite a uh, rebellion amongst enslaved persons. There had to be an organization behind him. And if that were indeed the case, that meant there would be more to come, right? The power of John Brown in Southern perception really had little to do with what actually happened in Harpers Ferry and had a lot more to do with the prospect of inevitable future abolitionist violence. So I think Brown is in many ways, um, John Brown's raid is one of the places I think to begin for us to sort of bring our conversation to a close because I think the Brown incident asks one of the fundamental questions that has been underlying our discussions for these last two episodes, which is, you know, the legitimacy of political violence, Um, both, I think, contemporaneously um, as actions um, and historically speaking, um, which, you know, sometimes they're related, but sometimes they're radically different. You know, Brown's actions have been interpreted in, you know, radically different ways across American history. It was very controversial at the time, you know, then there was a subtle opinion that Brown was an extremist. And then, of course, Brown's um, reputation in our lifetimes has been rehabilitated, at least somewhat. And, you know, people see Brown um, as, you know, a, a hero, much more so today than they would have even um, when we were kids and certainly earlier. Um, and, you know, that can go to a lot of other types of, of, of violence. And I think that Brown gets the core of the question. So the question here is, you know, what is the legitimacy of political violence in early America? One of the things I think that we've seen over the course of this 
um, a long, broad discussion over these two episodes um, is the idea of how political violence can be legitimated or justified changes over time and relies heavily on the immediate context in which it's being perceived or remembered. Well, I'll be a bit more aggressive here. Um, It's specifically, um, there's sort of a positive story uh, to political violence in early America and um, seeing here in the 21st century, I, I can point to John Brown as an example of this, but we can also point to many actions that we talked about in the first episode in the American Revolution as a way of expressing, you know, um, popular popular opinions and bringing about change that is shut out of the traditional political structure. That's somewhat closer to Ken's definition of political violence. It is, you know, individuals or groups of individuals taking actions that will bring attention to their problems, their grievances, and hopefully bring about positive change. Uh, Then, of course, I think there's the dark side of political violence in early American history, which is, of course, the strong link between political violence and white supremacy. Um, that's a theme, I think, from the word go in American history. Um, we, t- we began with Jamestown and we talked about all the ways in which, um, from settlement, that there was political violence against people who are not of European descent, whether they're Aboriginal Americans or um, people, Africans and African Americans. And that's something that it continues up to this point. And in many ways, does not end with the coming of the Civil War or the Civil War itself. You know, um, the the types the, that type of political violence that you see with groups like the KKK um, lies outside of sort of our remit um, with this podcast, but it has continuity with, I think this is, with the themes of what we've talked, one of the themes that we've talked about here. Yeah, I think that one of the values of thinking about political violence in early American history is that in a in a representative democracy that is founded on the idea of popular sovereignty i think it's a responsibility of citizens to think about these kinds of questions that we've raised especially the legitimacy question which is always relevant and it's a complicated thing because to be able to justify or approve of specific acts of political violence or disapprove of specific acts of political violence, I think it really requires reckoning with this history. And especially in our current moment, uh, has a really important civic purpose. How you answer those questions about um, legitimacy, about justification, Uh, should be at least partly informed by how you think about the past and about specific past acts of political violence. And that in itself, I think, is is a good example of how thinking about the past historically um, has a very deep and immediate relevance to our contemporary society and our lives. For me... If, as it seems that we're getting to sort of ha- having concluding thoughts, um, what comes out strongest to me from these discussions is that violence is in and of itself something that is scary and destructive. 
Um, and it's different from a lot of other political tactics that we talk about because in the use of violence, there's something that is is lost that can't easily be recovered. If you destroy property or you cause physical harm or you cause... Um, you use violence in a way that causes some other form of trauma to individuals. That's something that can't just be repaired in a way that at least the theory of a democratic system says that if you change the the way that society is governed, it, you're simply changing the, the playing field and that everyone has equal access to being able to taking the most advantage of those rules moving forward into the future. Um, and so when violence emerges as a political tactic, um, especially in a democratic society, there's something that does seem like it's immediately a rupture in the body politic of some sort. But that actually when we look at the myriad ways in which violence has been used throughout early American history, we find that it can be merely scary and destructive, but that it can also be used in ways that bring about change that don't necessarily lead to that rupture in the body politic that people fear when violence is first raised. That a lot of what we've talked about here, the the, the areas where things have become perpetually violent is where the starting points of people before anything got to violence were so far apart that they couldn't be brought together. And that in most of the other cases where we've talked about the uses of violence, it's reordered the attention of society and it's reordered the um, the organisation of power within a society to align government and society um, and the, the views of society so that they're much more closely in parallel. Sometimes that has been for what we might think of today as positive or progressive outcomes. Those have also been used to orient government and society in ways that we might not think of as so morally good from a, from a present-day perspective. But I think it is important when we think about violence um, as a political tactic and we look at historical examples of violence as a political tactic to think it is a tactic and it is a tactic amongst many, and that while it's designed to scare people, scaring people is only the first response. And that actually what we need to be thinking about much more carefully is what are the second, third, fourth, fifth responses, because that's ultimately what determines whether we think of the use of violence as legitimate or not when we look at things in historical perspective. Absolutely, Ken. I also think it's important to think, sitting here in the 21st century, violence has been a much more productive political tactic than sort of our contemporary discourse makes it out to be. That, you know, uh, many ways we are living in the legacy of um, events in the 20th century, but uh, which, you know, has a different attitude towards um, violence as a political tactic. But if we look to early American history, we can see that violence has was a much more successful political uh, tactic than than maybe op-eds in newspapers or popular journalism might imply. And that's an important thing to take into consideration when viewing modern-day political 
uh, political violence and uh, its, its outcomes both for good and for ill. I'm just generally speaking from the point of view of the end of this long discussion, the history and legacy of political violence in American history is long and multifaceted. If we're thinking about whether it's, you know, political violence by the state or by various uh, citizens or groups uh, for a variety of purposes, the United States has a very long tradition of political violence, um, for better and worse. And I think one of the things, and this kind of goes to Ken's comment, uh, is that in many cases, the less wanton the violence is, the more effective it has been. Um, but the other thing, too, is that as with revolutions, uh, it can be hard or near impossible uh, to predict what uh, the results of certain acts of political violence will be. So what your ultimate conclusion, Michael, is, is that we're much better at telling you what happened in the past than guessing what's going to happen in the future. Exactly right. <laughs> well, that seems a moment on which we can all agree. Um, and so I think that brings us to a, a natural conclusion to our lengthy discussion of, of political violence in early America. Um, if you've only listened to this episode, um, please do go back and listen to our first episode on political violence in early America, which you can find in our podcast feed. Um, if you've managed to make it through both, Thank you very much for your attention um, in listening to us. All that's left for me to do now is to thank Michael Hatton for joining me. Thank you, Ken. And to thank Roy Rogers for the discussion. Thanks, Ken. And to thank you, the listeners. We hope you'll join us for our next episode. All right, here we go. <laughs>